Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And me, as yours, This man, Prince of Darkness, and we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to, on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. This week's guest is Heather Kent. Heather Kent is a registered psychotherapist with a training background in trauma assessment and treatment. She is the number one Amazon best-selling author of the books, Heal From Your Narcissist X and I Left My Toxic Relationship. Now what? Much of her professional practice is focused on helping clients through the process of recovering from the trauma and PTSD of abusive relationships. Welcome Heather to Ask a Matchmaker. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here. I'm very excited to be able to talk with you today. So thanks for having me. So I looked over both of your books. Congratulations. I love that you have published and I'm reading the title heal from your narcissist X, the ultimate guide to safety and sanity. What do you mean by safety and sanity? That's a really great question. You may have had your own experience. I'm not sure with abusive relationships of some kind, but when you're in a situation with someone who is an intimate partner, for example, there comes a point where you really feel uncertain about what's going to happen at any given point. So you're walking on eggshells, you're feeling really tense. And this is, you know, over years and over time of being together with this person, there comes to a point where you really don't feel safe in your home, in your space, in your situation. You're always wondering, you know, when's the other shoe going to drop? What's going to happen next? And if you're um, able to leave the situation, you decided that the relationship is ending or maybe the abusive person ended it, you then still feel this constant sort of hyper alertness of what are they going to do to me next? How am I going to be punished because I decided to leave? You know, when the phone rings, is it going to be them? When my, when my phone vibrates from a text message, is it going to be them? What are they going to be coming after me for this time? And so there's this constant kind of background chattering and like really hyper vigilance of not feeling safe and questioning your sense of reality and what happened and feeling confused and kind of like what we call like a trauma fog where you really don't understand what, what just happened and what you've been through. And so it feels confusing. It feels exhausting and your brain and your body cannot register that you're safe. And so the work that I do in the book, this most recent book that I just wrote, it just came out last month. And this focuses on healing from those wounds and things that happen as a result of the trauma of being in an abusive relationship with a narcissist, because it actually does specific things to you. And it 
changes your brain and the trauma and the PTSD symptoms are there for a long term. And so over time, these things have developed and it's hard for you to break those patterns of thinking because you've been in this constant state of, you know, what's going to happen next? Is he going to fly off the handle? Is she going to freak out? For example, when sometimes I would come home from work and I would just sit in my driveway before I went into the house and I would just take a deep breath in and I would feel myself and say, okay, what am I going to walk into here? And I would kind of mentally prepare myself and brace myself for whatever unknown thing was going to be waiting for me on the other side. And I, I like to call it like when you're dealing with a narcissist, you're really playing emotional Russian roulette because you never know what you're going to get in any given moment. And it really is like a Jekyll and Hyde situation that you're dealing with. And so this can really lead to <laughs> difficulty maintaining and establishing a feeling of, of safety and, and stability and groundedness because it's a chaotic environment that you're living in. I mean, it also just sounds incredibly exhausting. Like I have been in relationships that were like this, not all of my past relationships were like this, but I, I can recall one where I, I did not know what the next hour was going to be like. And, you know, some people who are on the outside um, and I, you know, I, I will admit, I've also done this. I've thought this to myself with people that, you know, come to me with problems it's like, well, why can't you leave? You know, you're clearly unhappy. Why aren't you leaving? But sometimes it's, you know, you, I'm sure you can tell me why we're not leaving. You know, I feel like it's sometimes it's really hard. To, I, I remember fear being a big part of not leaving. A hundred percent. And so there's a lot of things involved that are kind of tangled together with regard to not leaving. And that's one of the big things that my clients, so I've had clients come into my private practice, you know, stuck in these relationships and not knowing what to do or how to get out or, or they just left and they're a mess and they feel guilty and there's all kinds of confusion going on. And the biggest, most common thing that every client I've ever worked with who's in this scenario has said to me is, I don't know why it took me so long to leave. I don't understand why I stayed so long. Or in some cases, such as my own, I left and then I went back. Why would I do that? How could I have done this? Like, yeah. What is wrong with me? And the answer is, there's nothing wrong with you. But what happened as a result of being subjected to this kind of abuse, like for a long period of time, the different parts in your brain actually change. And so we have there's lots of different parts of our brain, but I'll just talk about two parts really quickly. We have the hippocampus, which is the part of our brain that is responsible for memory and reasoning and problem solving and, and logic. And then we have this other part of our brain that hangs out at the bottom of our skull, right at the base of our neck. And it's, it's called the amygdala. And the amygdala is like our body's central alarm system, like pulling the fire alarm. And so what happens as a result of being exposed to this type of abuse for a long period of time, our hippocampus, so remember, memory, problem-solving logic, that part of our brain actually shrinks over time as a result of being exposed to this trauma. So our abilities to think clearly, remember things, and problem-solve diminishes. And then our amygdala, which is the red alert, sound the alarm part of our brain, actually gets bigger. So we mm -hmm. are more susceptible 
to having that panic reaction, you know, like that fight, flight, freeze, fight, flight, freeze that they talk about. That's, that's what that part of our brain does. So when that alarm bell cell sounds off and says, danger, 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 we're either going to run, we're going to fight, or we're going to freeze and do nothing or hide. And so our brains become sort of stuck in this pattern of danger, danger, danger. And sometimes we get paralyzed and we can't leave. We're also not sure what's going to happen if we do leave because we've been conditioned to believe that, you know, something terrible is going to happen if we do leave. How are they going to punish us? They're threatening that, you know, they might cut us off financially. There's all kinds of things that they might say or do to keep us stuck in the situation. And then we've also, excuse me, over time developed what we call a trauma bond. And a trauma bond is a lot like Stockholm syndrome. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. So like if victims of um, who are, you know, kidnapping terrorists and that kind of thing, victims of torture, they actually develop like a attachment, sympathy, yeah, yeah, like a kind and and caring relationship with their, Mm. with their captor, with their attacker, with their abuser. Um, And they care for them when they get rescued, they're concerned about what's going to happen to them. They don't want something bad to happen to them even though they kidnapped them and tortured them for the past, you know, two years. So the same thing happens to us when we're in abusive relationships. We form this trauma bond with the person who is abusive towards us because we care about them and we love them and we entered the relationship, you know, with full intentions and and pureness of, of our feelings for the other person. What we didn't know was the person that we were with was disingenuous with us the whole time. And so that's the part that's really confusing. It, as you're speaking, it just kind of makes me think about the political landscape of this country and <laughs> of at least the United States, not absolutely, Canada. Absolutely. And I think about how like, you know, is it a trauma bond that people feel? And, 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 and now and speaking to that now, um, and by people, I mean, you know, people who, let's say, supported yeah. the January 6th insurrection. Yes, absolutely. So is that a trauma bond? And then also are people like Senator Hawley um, capitalizing on you getting ex-boyfriend, new boyfriend syndrome, where it's like, you know, you replace the one abuser with another abuser. I wish people could see how you're violently nodding yes to what I'm asking. So definitely use words now. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Everything you're saying is absolutely accurate from my perspective. And um, and I'm not just a, an outsider kind of observing as a Canadian. Um, my sister lives in Florida, of all places. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so- Got it. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're pretty invested in what's happening and what's been happening in the United States, um, you know, especially in the last year and in the last few months. Um, but there is no question that the United States has been in an abusive relationship with a narcissist as their leader. There is absolutely no question. And, and it's ironically funny that, um, that he was the, uh, the president of the United States because he, he actually made my job very easy because I, I was able to refer to him as, as a very well-known yeah. example of, of right. what, what a narcissistic personality can look like and, and what are the types of behaviors that mm-hmm. you might see. And so we are exactly looking at the result of of being involved with a narcissist and the abuse of power and mm. the fear mongering and the manipulation of facts and complete mm-hmm. fabrication of information to steer personal interest above all else. And right. then the ability to 
you know, brainwash people into believing that what there is being said is true because they've been conditioned over time to mm. believe these things. And so, you know, the, the insurrection on January 6th was not a spur of the moment thing that just happened a few minutes before they started marching. This seed has been planted and just cultivated for months and months prior to the January 6th. I mean, they were laying the groundwork for a fraudulent election before the votes were even cast. He was saying, you know, if I lose, it's only because the election will have been fraudulent. For the first time in American history, the election will be fraudulent because I lost. Like, right. This is not a logical argument, but but he set that up months and months before and kept driving it and kept perpetuating it. And so the people who are listening, of course, they're going to start be believing it and, under, and thinking that what they're saying is true. Because we've been conditioned to believe that everything that he said has been true up to this point. Right. And so this is the result that we have. And it, you know, from a colloquial perspective, if you will, it's kind of like thinking like, well, who wouldn't believe the president? You know, it's the president. Is he allowed to lie? But on the scientific perspective, you just said something quite important a few minutes ago. You said the hippocampus, am I saying it? It's a Greek word. Am I pronouncing correctly? And then the amygdala. And so you have like the science perspective of like, well, here's your brain changing. So it's, it's just interesting to see because like on my end, I am constantly questioning my own reality, like kind of gut checking myself too, but like, 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 am I crazy? Like, how do I know not to trust this person? Is it because I grew up in the New York city, New Jersey area? So I've always been accustomed to, you know, who this person is as a person. Um, like, why do people believe everything? Like, I don't, I don't get it. And, and, you know, so it's, it's very confusing. Very interesting because, and I, and I'm going to draw, I'm a history person as well. So I used to teach history. So I'm going to draw some parallels to the climate before World War II broke out because the exact same thing was happening in Germany. And so you have a leader who is, you know, strong and says these things and makes these promises and that we're going to make, make the country great again. We're going to build it back up again. Like all of this very similar, very similar rhetoric that Mm -hmm. happened in the 1930s. And what you have at the end of the day, you have people who prior to this understood their governments to be responsible. They understood their governments to have their people's best interests in mind and to be serving the people and protecting the people. And that is what we believe these systems are in place to do as civilized, you know, uh, governmental structures. And so, of course, up to this point, we had no reason to believe that we wouldn't be able to trust the words of our governmental leader. Like, right. Up to this point, they had been upstanding truth telling for the most part, you know. Right. Well, I mean, politicians are going to be politicians, but eventually they have to transition to being, you know, statesmen states persons. And, you know? and if you, if you, if you read any of the memoirs of Jewish people who survived the Holocaust mm. and you know, the, this, the incremental steps that took place that, that led to that hor- mm. horrible situation, the climate changed slowly over time. It was these small kind of micro changes and everybody went along with them. Right. And then when they, they get asked, well, why would you ever listen? And, you know, eventually, why did you agree to get on the train? Right. Because we had no reason not to trust our government. We had no reason not to trust right. 
the police. We had no reason not to trust that this is going to be safe for us to do. I just, I knew something was wrong with the brains, I suppose, of the insurrectionists when I could see in video them telling cops, we're on your side. And I'm like, I can't even imagine a scenario where I talk colloquially to a police officer, let alone as I'm storming a federal building about a legitimate election. Yeah, it's like it was just it just blew my mind and you know there are some it's been shown that some um some police officers were yes part of that and i just it kind of it just really blew my mind but to go back to your book i heal from your narcissistic ex it seems like you know it's not just you know your ex-boyfriend or your ex-president it could also be you know your ex-boss because i've seen people leave narcissistic relationships with their bosses and have a sense of like what did I just, why, why did I stay this long? What just happened? You know, I've, I have, I've had former employees get come to me with PTSD from their previous bosses. Absolutely. Um, and I used to work for one as well. Um, so I can can speak to that. (laughs) I remember getting up in the morning. It was this absolute dread in the pit of my stomach, Mm -hmm. like terrified to go to work. Because mm. again, like I said, that emotional Russian roulette that you're playing, you never know what you're going to get on any given day with this person who basically has, you know, your life in their hands because they're responsible for your performance reviews and all this sort of thing. And, you know, they call you into their office and you're like, I, remember, I used to joke, I'm like, my house is sweating. I have to go in there. What's going to happen? Because I just instantly right. had this anxiety spike because I didn't know if I'm going to be yelled at, if I'm going to be accused of something crazy, if I'm going to be, you know, on something that I apparently did that made her look good. Mm -hmm. And so I just never knew what it was going to be. And so it was extremely stressful to be going to work when I, and it it was like this tyrannical kind of hold she had over everyone. Mm. And we all felt the same way. And so it was very, very challenging. Yeah, it's really tough. And so when you get out of it, you you can breathe a sigh of relief finally. And you're like, wow, I didn't realize how awful it was until I wasn't in it anymore. And you have a little space for that fog, that sort of trauma fog to lift. And you can kind of start to make sense of what happened a little bit. And then you're like, oh my gosh, how did I do that for so long? And and again, it's because you're kind of stuck in this cycle and, and and it's an abusive, it's, it's, it's in a cycle of abuse specific to narcissism. And it's not just your boss. It's not just your partner. It can be your parent. It can be a sibling, mm. it's a friend. And so narcissistic relationships exist all around us. And the impact is no less catastrophic in terms of the, the effects on your brain and the PTSD that develops as a result of being exposed to it over a long period of time. I, wow in that trauma fog, when it lifts, does the brain start to, the neurons, I suppose, does, do they start to shape back into place or so do you need therapy? Like what do you, yeah, what, so, what lifts that fog? Yeah. So the, the fog doesn't typically kind of lift all by itself. You definitely do over time, get some relief because you realize, okay, I'm, I'm not in that situation anymore. And cognitively, you might know that, but your nervous system doesn't know that. Your body remembers all of your cell or all your cells remember the traumatic experiences and the stress that your body has just gone through for the past, you know, five, seven, 10, 25 years. And your nervous system, which is, you know, the amygdala is part of that, hasn't understood or caught up 
that we're no longer in danger. And so it takes a very long time for your nervous system to recover enough and calm down to even begin to process through the trauma that happened because it's still in like, do I need to protect myself mode? Because we haven't realized that we're no longer in danger, that we are actually physically safe. And so it takes a while to, to, to be able to undo some of that before you can do the work around the memories and processing through the events that happened, understanding that it wasn't your fault, understanding that you're worthy, self-compassion and self-esteem are really huge pieces of the healing work that needs to happen because, again, as a result of being with an abusive person who devalues you, who degrades you, who you know verbally abuses you, maybe physically and sexually abuses you as well, um, threatens you, all of this over time really takes a toll on any kind of self-worth or self-esteem and, and even feeling like that you have agency, that you have control over your life, like that all doesn't feel possible. And so those are the kind of beginning pieces that need to happen and, and definitely doing therapeutic work with a professional who can help and who understands this type of dynamic is really important because not everyone knows about personality disorders and not everybody kind of specializes in and understands kind of the nature of how that works and what happens as a result of that. And so um, it's important to find someone who is informed and who, you know, has trauma background and who understands what it means to have been a, a survivor with a narcissistic person or another type of, of abuse. One of the most popular questions that I receive every Wednesday during the Ask a Matchmaker Instagram stories series is how do I know if the person that I'm dating is a narcissist or an avoidant personality type? Like these are not mutually exclusive, of course, of course. Um, but, but you know, as much as it's not a circle, they definitely certainly overlap. Absolutely. They do. Yeah. And it's a real question. Like, how do I know if this is what I'm dealing with? So I kind of, and I get this question a lot myself too. So right. one of the things that I kind of developed is, um, I call it, it is my partner a narcissist test. And I mean, it's not exclusive to partners. Either. What an original title cuts to the chase, but again, you can substitute the word partner for mother, father, brother, boss, right? So, so this is, these are kind of the questions that you need to ask yourself and reflect on. And I'll just run through them with you quickly. So number one, does my partner experience an exaggerated sense of self-importance? So again, thinking to the former president of the United States, that exaggerated sense of thinking that they're amazing. They think that they're wonderful. They are so talented. They are fantastic. They... Only he can fix it. Correct. So this type of thinking, and they might not say it out loud. They might not be as um, extroverted as he is, um, but it could be something that they feel and kind of keep that quiet, but they might say it at home. Um, does he require or she constant admiration from others? So do I need other people to tell me how amazing I am? Do I need other people to, to tell me that I'm wonderful and smart and talented? Do I do volunteer work just because it gives me recognition for being a good person? This type of thing. Does he expect total compliance from others? They expect other people to listen to them no matter what, not question, not go against what they want to do does he struggle to recognize the emotions and needs of other people and this one is the big one because this one 
refers to the ability to have empathy and kind of the hallmark of, you know, what is a narcissist? It's a person who is unable, incapable of experiencing empathy. So they, they cannot fathom what it would be like to experience something as another person. So they do not think about what they might be doing and how that could be impacting other people. They do not think about how other people are feeling at any given time. The only thing they think about is how what they're doing serves their own interests. So this is a really big, big piece. This is what separates narcissists from other types of personality disorders. The, the lack of empathy, the inability to feel for other people's experience. So does my partner or whoever it is struggle to recognize the emotions and needs of other people? Does my partner ever expect special treatment or favors from other people? So the rules don't apply. Double standards. Help me out because I'm due. I deserve you to help me out. Does he ever experience heightened jealousy? Now, jealousy of you, perhaps? Jealousy of who you spend time with, even if it's with your children or your parents? Jealousy about the success of others? Resentment? Comparing himself to others? Does he insist on having the best of everything? So, a wonderful house, great car, new boat. Regardless if he can afford it or she can afford it. Regardless, because it's all about the image. The image of having the perfect life. Mm. And does he assume that other people are jealous of them and their talents and successes? So those are kind of the big questions to ask. And if you've answered yes to more than two of them. Two of them, okay. Pretty much. (laughs) Like you can you can you can bank that you're dealing with at least someone who has narcissistic personality traits, but it's really interesting. I, I had a statistic shared with me last week that it's estimated that around 460 million narcissists exist in the world. And I find that statistic very interesting because it's actually very difficult to get someone to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder because well, let's think about it. First, you have to get them to admit that they have a problem. That, that they're somehow flawed, which goes against everything that they're trying to create in terms of this health, right? So let's think about the former president. When is he going to admit that he has a problem? Oh, Secondly, no, right. Secondly, he admits that he's got a problem and that he needs help. How, how likely is that going to be? Then they actually agree to go to see a psychiatrist who would conduct a you're basically saying that it's certainly undercalculated. Yeah. And so it's interesting. And I I agree with you. I think there's, and there's so many different types of narcissists too. So yeah, I I can see that. How about the best time to not date a narcissist is to not go past the first or second date and everything you just said, well, you know, those are, that's a really good, you know, test. You'd have to be in a relationship with someone to, you know, get the context. So I've noticed personally, like a few red flags that can come out on a first date. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any pink flags, red flags that would show up on a, one, the first or second date. That's like, mm, danger, so, danger, danger. Yeah. So if they're really interested in just talking about themselves, um, mm. that's a really big indicator. Um, and, you know, they might initially ask about you, but then they might interrupt you in the middle of your answer or mm. tie it back to something that they did or, or, or like one up you on a, something that's similar that happened to them. They'll bring the conversation back to them quite often. 
Um, that would be a really big one. They might share with you about all of their successes and the wonderful, cool things that they've done, places they've traveled. But the thing about narcissists is that in the beginning, they're very tough to spot because they're very good at- They're so charming. Yes. And so charismatic, this is part of like this first cycle of narcissistic abuse. And so the first cycle is called love bombing or Mm -hmm. idealization. Mm -hmm. So in this phase, which is the beginning, they're very, very charming, very, very charismatic, extremely kind and interested and funny and exhilarating and giving you all kinds of compliments and showing up unexpected with flowers and telling you you're the best and that you're so amazing. They can't wait to see you again. Um, and, and you're really just, you think, wow, like I really I'm connecting with this person on such a deep level. And, and this is kind of never happened to me before. And so this must be it. This is my person. And so they're really, really good at that at the beginning, but what's actually happening is they're actually mirroring back things that you are offering to them. And so what we get connected to, what we fall in love with is actually their projection of, of the wonderful things that we offer to them because they can't offer it themselves. And so it's really interesting because that, that dies away after time. And then these other red flags start appearing because they can't withstand the facade for an extended period of time. And so over time, we get to kind of see like the mask comes off and we Mm. see other things. And so initially it's hard to spot, but I would say someone who spends a lot of time talking about themselves would be a big red flag. And just kind of talking about all the great things that they do would be a big red flag. I feel like I said this maybe in last week's episode or sometime recently though, but if a man ever says to a woman or a man to a man or a woman to a woman, but if someone says to you on a first date, I've never, you know what, I actually, I'm going to say not to woman to a woman, but if a man says this to a woman or a man to a man, I'm, if he says something like, I've never said this to anyone before on a first date, I always think to myself, like, that is so dangerous mm-hmm. because- at what point on a first date should you like, I don't think that's really appropriate at a first meeting of someone like to say stuff like that. Like you shouldn't be saying anything to this person that you've never told someone. There's a million other things that you could talk about that are intimate that you've definitely told someone. Absolutely. So it's, it's like shocking, like that phrase. And then another phrase, I know I wrote about this on my Instagram stories um, recently, which is if a man ever says to you on a first or second date, I don't deserve you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always say like, you know, that's just a guy, that's just a person's way of making you go down to their level you have. Cause what, you know, what's the natural response to that? It's say that of course, like you're yeah, okay. exactly. It's, it's the compliment, mm-hmm. the person exactly. And mm-hmm. so I'm so glad you just role played that. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, eventually six, seven months down the line, you know, you have resentment. Yeah. You're like, you're not at, you know, your balance you're at their level, which might not be the level you want to be at. It's, it's just so frustrating. You know, when I see that one thing that I remember with, um, I had a narcissistic ex, which was just a lot of emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I remember about him was, 
as if the, there's two parts as if the whole world owed him something and if if only i was born to a rich family i'd show you how great i am and if only i did this then i then this would happen if only i you know it's like if he um if he had said like you know if only i was just an inch taller i would have been in the nba or if only i you know lived in this neighborhood then this would happen like it was always about like the opportunities he missed which were never offered to him to begin with I remember when he started searching for a job and he would not apply to like the entry level positions. It was oh. all like, oh, I just graduated. So now I need to be mid-level management. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what? Like, wh- I don't even have that kind of confidence to apply for entry level, let alone mid-level. Like, what are you doing? So it just felt, it just felt, I remember, what is the word for this? It's what kind of narcissist, covert, no, not covert. No, no. Um, so they all have an inflated sense of self. So there's right. definitely an inflated sense of how you know great they are. Um, and so, yeah, the different types of narcissists, the, the foremost common that you really see on, like on a regular basis is the, the, the overt, which is the grandiose, you know, mm-hmm. former president of the United States. Then you have the covert narcissist and they are more quiet, actually. So they, they actually report high levels of anxiety very often and depression because they're very uncomfortable and insecure. They're all insecure. But they're, they're so terrified of judgment from others that they do not want to attract attention to themselves. So they do not do things to say, look at me, look, I'm wonderful. Look at all the cool things I'm doing. They will avoid being the center of attention for the intense fear of other people judging them. But they harbor that secret grandiosity where they think that they're better than others. They have resentment towards other people. They're jealous of others. They think other people should owe them things. They never take responsibility for their never. I just remember like, you know, even when I could prove that they were wrong about something, it was my fault somehow. It was just very uh like ah, you know, before when you said about being in the car in the beginning of the episode, uh, you know, I didn't own a car, but I remember like thinking like, Am I even happy? No, I'm not happy. But like, you know, because you know, with with the narcissist, it's like, you know, the good times are so rare that when they finally happen, they just feel amazing. And yeah. that's what you're chasing, essentially. Well, you're clinging on to that because what happens at so the beginning is that love bombing idealization phase. This is the phase where you believe this person to be the genuine. What you're seeing is what you're genuinely getting. But this is all the, the act and the mask. And so we're desperately clinging on to that beginning time where things were so wonderful and you were so connected to this other human being who so understood you. And it was amazing. And you had these fantastic memories and you cling on to that so desperately when things are awful and, and they'll breadcrumb those just enough to keep you on the hook. So as I mentioned, this sort of narcissistic cycle of abuse, we go into the devaluation phase where that's where the gaslighting happens, where they kind of make you question your sense of reality. They blame you for everything. They degrade you. They make fun of you. They are resentful. Then they go into full, what we call discard, where they just toss you aside and just kind of completely stop paying attention to you. They don't want to have anything to do with you. They're cold. They just don't want to engage with you. So then they would feel us starting to naturally kind of pull away and shut down. Maybe we're going to consider leaving. And at that moment, they're like, wait a second. I still need to get some supply and attention from this person. So let me just go back and suck her back into the love bombing for a minute, just to remind her of how great things were. So that we go around the circle again. And so we, this is the narcissistic cycle of abuse. So this hoovering like a vacuum cleaner, you get sucked back in 
to that love bombing idealization phase because that's the part that we're hanging on to. That's the part that we remember. That's the part where we were bonded to this person. And so we're thinking, okay, if I just do this, it'll get better. If I just try harder, it'll get better. If I just remember not to do X, Y, Z things, things are going to be you know, easier. And if things are going to get back to that place that I'm so desperately hanging on to. And right. and that's another part of, of the abuse because they're playing that all the time. But the problem with narcissists is that they constantly need a source of supply and we call it narcissistic supply and it's attention, it's energy, it's validation of their existence because they cannot validate themselves. So they need external validation all the time. And no one person can ever give them enough. Mm. They can't get it from one person. And so they need to get sources of supply from many different people, many different avenues. But you, the, the partner, are a constant source of supply and a constant scapegoat, a person to blame for everything that's going wrong. Right. You're the perfect, yeah. Plus you, you, you play into that role of the perfect image of this, you know, the societal norms of having a partner and a family and whatever it is. And so you play into that role as well. And so you serve all of their narcissistic needs and get nothing back for it. But we're clinging on to that part in the beginning. We remember that it was wonderful. So when people work with you, what are they working on? We're working on recovery from the abuse that happened. Mm -hmm. So basically we look at, you know, what is narcissism? A lot of the time, many people who are in these relationships don't even realize until after it's over. So we do a little bit of, you know, understanding what they went through. What kind of a narcissist were you dealing with? Was it a covert one? Was it the communal one? Those are my Mm. favorite where they think they, they present as being these amazing, wonderful, helpful humans, but really the only motivation they have for doing all these great things is for the recognition that they get. Right. And then you have the malignant ones who are the really dangerous kind and they borderline on that kind of psychopathy and uh, Machiavellianism sort of, they call it the dark triad. And so these are the people, the Hitlers of the world who really like enjoy the suffering of others and do things to make other people suffer. The Hitlers of the world. Oh my God. I hope there's not more than one, but I I get what you're saying. It's very, um, yeah. You you kind of assess what, what did you deal with? What kind of a personality were you with? And then what, what are my symptoms? What is PTSD? A lot of, most of my clients don't even realize they have PTSD. And so we go through what those symptoms look like. You know, are we having flashbacks? Are we reliving things that happened to us? Are we having nightmares? Do we have difficulty sleeping? Are we constantly on that? Remember I talked about that hyper arousal and and really feeling like you can't ever, you're always in danger. You never know what's going to happen. These are kind of the the big, uh, a few of the big things that, that come up as a result of being exposed to trauma over a long period of time. It's, it's a complex, called complex PTSD. And so we look at what those symptoms are and we do these assessments, you know, we look at anxiety levels, depression levels. We look at these PTSD symptoms and then like, okay, now we need to heal from these things, recover from these things. And so we do clinical work, like, um, we do therapy work to, you know, reprocess those traumatic events that happened and make sense of what happened, intervene and interventions and strategies to help regulate our emotions, to help us understand these feelings of distress, to be able to tolerate this uncomfortable, scary feeling, 
to calm our nervous system down, mm-hmm. to learn how to self-soothe so that we can, our bodies can feel safe so that our brains can start to process and, and create new pathways to get rid of those old, you know, negative conditioning beliefs that we have, these core values that are very damaging, you know, on right. that not enough, whatever version of not enough that means good enough, smart enough, pretty enough. But essentially getting through your narcissistic trauma, your narcissistic abuse and the trauma that came from it. Um, Yeah. So I I love this, Heather, this, you know, you've been such a great resource today, uh, you know, about talking about, you know, the safety and sanity, as you said before, that, you know, it, it becomes quite misunderstood, in a narcissistic relationship. How can my listeners learn more about your services or where can they find you online? Oh, amazing. Yes. So I am online, of course, on Facebook and Instagram. um, And those links are hooked up to my website. My website is super easy to find. You just have to go to my name. So it's heatherjkent.com. And at my website, you can book a one-hour consultation with me for absolutely free if you would like to oh, wow. Yeah, talk about what your experience has been, what's going on for you. Um, you know, if you have any questions, if you're wondering about if this is what you're dealing with, um, I'm happy to meet with you and give you that time. And then I also have my books available that you can access for free as well. And so you can, you can have access to those through my website and I would love to connect with you online in Facebook or in Instagram. But if you want to chat with me, I would love for you to book a consultation. So there's a link right at the top of my website to book a call with me. And I would be happy to, to chat with you, to answer your questions and support you in any way that I can. That is amazing, Heather. I will leave a link to your website on the episode notes. I want to thank you so much. Any parting words? Of wisdom. So for listeners who may be wondering, you know, if this is me, if this is my situation, or maybe you're like, yeah, this is totally where I am. I just want you to know that you are not alone and there is help available and you do not have to walk this journey alone. That's yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for being of service to this. And thank you so much for joining me on Ask a Matchmaker. Thank you so much for having me. It was so wonderful to be here and have a wonderful day, everyone. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you love what you heard and you have not already, rate, review, and of course, subscribe and tell a friend. Do you have a dating or relationship question? You can visit askamatchmaker.com to submit your question. You can also send your rants and closure letters. We have an upcoming episode. We love going through those things. Just when you write them, just include a little more, include a little bit more context so we know what happened that you need to send a closure letter. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matchmaker Maria for more dating and relationship tips. Until then, be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.